Welcome, everyone, to a special edition of Days of Roar, a Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Evan Petzl, and I'm joined by a special guest for a special episode to recap the winter meetings in Nashville, Tennessee. Our guest is Bob Nightingale, USA Today Sports Major League Baseball columnist and an insider for all things on the free agent and trade markets. Thanks for joining us. Bob, we're both back home from the winter meetings. How are you doing after a busy three days? I get to breathe some uh, fresh air just going to the airport and back back home. So it's nice not being uh, stuck indoors for four days. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that. There was a big debate between San Diego or Nashville, and it sounds like a lot of people <laughs> lean towards San Diego. You, your thoughts on that? And also, what was the Opryland like? Put it in perspective for us, because that was my first time there, and I was blown away. I, I think it's like 3,000 hotel rooms and three different atriums and plants growing everywhere. And I think there's a boat ride, too. I mean, it, I've never seen anything like that. Now, I think it's a uh, the largest hotel in uh, the world, maybe at least North America, that doesn't have a casino. I mean, that's you know, it's like a yeah, you know, Las Vegas size hotel. But no, that's my sixth uh, winter means there, and I still get lost. I think I counted twenty four times I got lost. You know, so many people have complained about that. That's the worst winter means hotel, just as far as getting anything done. So that's the end of it. So that may be the last time you ever set foot in the Gatelord Opryland, Evan. Yeah, good. Well, I enjoyed San Diego last year, so I'm I'm down for that as many times as we can do that in the future. But look, obviously, we're going to spend the majority of this podcast talking about the winter meetings as well as you know main storylines surrounding the biggest stars: Juan Soto, Shohei Otani, you know Yoshinobu Yamamoto. But first, I really want to get your thoughts on the Detroit Tigers. Obviously, the Tigers were very quiet as expected at the winter meetings. They already went out and acquired outfielder Mark Hanna in a trade with the Milwaukee Brewers. They also signed right-hander Kenta Maeda to a two-year, $24 million contract. Canna's under contract for $11.5 million in 2024. Well, Maeda obviously has that two-year deal for 2024 and 2025. The Tigers got some of their shopping done early. They're in a weak American League Central. What do you think about those moves, Canna and Maeda? And what do you think it does for the Tigers in terms of competing in the American League Central? Yeah, I mean, Ken is kind of an under-radar guy. You know, he's a, a big bat. You know, he's, he you know, struggled uh, at times last year. So I, I think that's a, a nice pickup. Miami, too. I mean, I would have preferred that they kept Rodriguez. Rodriguez was a good fit there. Obviously, a, a better pitcher than Maeda. But that's really helps. I think if they really want to take a, a step forward for a contention, they go get, you know, one more veteran starter. You know, maybe even a guy like a Michael Waka or something like that or Seth Lugo, but just another arm in there to get give them some depth and some innings. Does that kind of speak to just where the American League Central is at, that a guy like a Waka or a Lugo could move the Tigers into legit contention at that point? Just when we hear about the Minnesota Twins cutting payroll, the Cleveland Guardians, at least, you know, considering trading, you know, Shane Bieber and Emmanuel Classe, I guess just where is the American League Central at and what does that mean for the Tigers at this point? Yeah, I mean, it means you can win the division probably with, you know, 85, 88 wins. And, uh, you know, Cleveland took a step backwards last year. They had so many injuries. I'm surprised that they don't take advantage of it because they got the pitching, you know, to really get a stranglehold in that division. So, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Minnesota's step, taking a step back here. They say they're not going to spend. Obviously, the White Sox are into a rebuild. So the thing is, they, the thing is wide open. We'll see what happens. But I think, yep. Yeah, People tend to get a little lazy there. I mean, last year, remember, Cleveland was only a game out at the trade deadline and, and gave up. And I think I even, you know, jokingly on the uh, Twitter says, congratulations, Minnesota Twins, for, you know, winning the AL Central by just doing nothing. 
So, but yeah, I mean, the Tigers have a chance to get in there. But still, you'd like to see them make, you know, take advantage of this, take advantage of why everybody's sitting back and you know, go for the throat. That's the American League Central in a nutshell. And then you look over to the American League East and you see teams like, you know, the Baltimore Orioles doing what they're doing with their young talent. You see the New York Yankees obviously bringing Juan Soto. We probably should start there. Everything was super slow at the Opryland, you know, going through the, the winter meetings until the Rule 5 draft concluded to end the meetings, at least for most teams. And, and then things started to heat up with the New York Yankees, you know, finally making that trade with the San Diego Padres, Juan Soto and Trent Grisham to the Padres in exchange for Michael King, Drew Thorpe, Randy Vasquez, Johnny Brito, and Kyle Higashioka. We were here in Yankees, Padres for a while, but nothing became official until Wednesday night. Can you walk us through how the trade happened, what it means for the Yankees in 2024, and kind of what it means for Juan Soto in the AL East? Yeah, I mean, I, to, I got to the Opera Land on Saturday, and the talks were, you know, just starting really, at least in depth. And then, it, you know, it turned out where Padres were asking for seven players, the Yankees went nuts, said this is going to work. Sunday, they said all talks are off. And then the, the Yankees' strategy behind the scenes was, you know what, we need two outfielders. Well, let's go get Verdugo now, and that'll put the pressure on San Diego that we don't have to have by Soto. They did that, and, and it worked. You know, the Yankees, you know, all of a sudden, too, said, okay, we're willing to meet most of your demands, and we'll take on Trent Grisham, the extra $5, 6000000 million there. So they worked vigorously and pretty much had the thing done yesterday morning. It was just kind of reviewing medicals and just some small things, too. And, you know, and then the, kind of day got away from everybody. Then the Padres were uh, presenting a, you know, Chuck Lamar an award at the Scouts Dinner. So, you know, there's, a, you know, A.J. Preller scribbling down notes before the before the banquet about 5.30. You know, when I walked in, and I said, oh, man, this is going to take a while. Let's, uh, you know, listen to the first two speeches. I said, we'll be here for a while. <laughs> so before this trade's finally done. So it finally gets done about an hour after the scouts dinner ends. And I think A.J. Preller is doing his press conference, you know, around uh, 11, 11.30 last night. It was incredible just how it all came together. And it was something that obviously... We were all anticipating, because like you had mentioned, and, and you had reported on it, the rumblings between the Yankees and the Padres and what was holding it up. But how important was that Verdugo trade? You made that point, and I didn't really think about that. But how much did that help move the needle? Yeah, uh, I think a lot. And I think the Yankees thought that too, is that, okay, let's put some pressure on, let's put some pressure on the Padres. It worked. If you're the Padres, you know, all you had was uh, Yankees, Toronto Blue Jays, and there was a third team, whether it was the Cubs or Seattle, but there was a third team. And uh, they couldn't count on the Blue Jays. I mean, if the Blue Jays get, get Otani, then they're completely out. So I think they said, you know what, let's get what we have. I thought they got a, I thought they got a good deal for only having uh, a one-year rental, you know, especially for you know, $32, $33 million. What does it say about the Yankees and Brian Cashman? Well, I think it's the uh, Yankee ownership and uh, Yankee fans saying, hey, we want you to be back to being the Yankees again. You know, you, you know, we all know you should win with a 200 payroll, $250 million payroll. But let's go put a juggler here, get fans excited and do it like we used to do in the old days. When they missed out the playoffs in the 2008, you know, they went out and got T.C. Sabathia and spent, they ended up spending like $430 million, got Mark to share and won the World Series. So I think the plan is now is like, okay, you know, beefed up that offense, which was 25th of the league. In our 25th big leagues for runs scored. And they'll be all in on Yamamoto, too. I think they're uh, confident they're going to get this guy. So they're going to go have over a $300 million payroll. 
So as much as people complain about the Mets, the Yankees are doing what the Mets did a couple of years ago, or like what they did last year. We got to get to Yamamoto in a little bit, but I want to ask one more question about Juan Soto. He's a Scott Boris guy. Obviously, you know, there's always talk that Scott Boris doesn't really do contract extensions. He likes his guys to go to free agency and he likes to hit the home runs there. Is there any chance Juan Soto signs a contract extension or re-signs with the Yankees? Or do you think this is a one-year thing? Go for it. Try to win it all. I think that, you know, he could easily end up with an extension or a, you know, once he hits free agency a year from now, he's not going to sign anything right now. I don't care what the Yankees offer. And then, uh, you know, I mean, New York is always giving him play as a free agent. So why not return there if you're Soto? Of course, you got the Mets, you know, right there too. Boston, there's not a whole lot of teams that can afford that kind of money. I'm not sure he go back to the West Coast of the Dodgers, but he did love playing for the Padres. He really did. I think he was a little disappointed he got traded because he likes San Diego. But yeah, so we'll see what happens. He's going to want over $500 million. I think he'll piggyback what Otani gets. I think that'd be what Scott Morris and Soto would love is to somehow eclipse what Otani gets this year with Soto next year. For sure. Obviously, that move happens, you know, Wednesday night, and then there's a trickle-down effect. We see the Eduardo Rodriguez deal come together. Eduardo Rodriguez signing a four-year, $80 million contract with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So four years, $80 million, vesting option for the 2028 season that could make it five years, $100 million. Obviously, I know Eduardo Rodriguez from seeing him with the Tigers over the past two seasons. He does have a relationship with Mike Hazen, the Diamondbacks general manager from their time together in Boston with the Red Sox. I'm interested to know, what do you think Eduardo Rodriguez would have meant to the D-backs in the World Series last year had they acquired him at the trade deadline. Now, I have heard rumblings that the D-backs were one of the teams on his no-trade list, so I don't know if that actually would have happened anyway. But how much did the D-backs need another pitcher last year in the playoffs? And what does this move mean for the Diamondbacks moving forward, beginning in 2024? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have meant much last year just because they surprised everybody anyway. It made the World Series. I lost, you know, lost four games to one. You know, maybe he would have added, you know, one more win or so in the World Series. Now, if you say what he would have meant for the Dodgers, I mean, the Dodgers might have done and beat up the Padres and left them in the dust in the first round. So I guess he's going to move his family to Phoenix. I was surprised just because of what everything happened with the, you know, between the the trades of the Dodgers last year, the trade deadline. I thought maybe he didn't want to come out west, but the whole family's coming out. It's going to be interesting when they go to Dodger Stadium. I mean, he's got a four-year contract. So, you know, when he goes there six, seven times a year, I can imagine what it's like when he pitches there. I mean, the fans there are not going to forget, like, hey, dude, you had a chance to help us get to the World Series. We're, we're much better than Diamondbacks, but we didn't have the pitching. And so I'm sure they'll, sure they'll hear about it, just like the Astros hear about it every time we go to Dodger Stadium. Yeah, obviously, I mean, everybody with the Tigers knows about what happened at the trade deadline when it goes to... You know, the Tigers had a deal with the Dodgers in place and Eduardo Rodriguez's agent, Gene Motto, you know, inserted himself into some of those conversations, you know, for financial reasons with, you know, financial demands and the Dodgers weren't willing to meet those demands. And then the agreed upon trade falls apart with Rodriguez invoking the no trade clause. And then the Tigers are stuck paying him for the final two months of the season and they don't get any prospects back for him. And that really rubbed a lot of Tigers fans the wrong way. I think Dodgers fans were obviously frustrated too. but where we're at now with Eduardo Rodriguez pitching for the Diamondbacks, what kind of a pitcher does this mean for the Diamondbacks? Like, How much does this help them in their pursuit of getting back to the World Series and, and getting over that hump and, and winning it? 
I think if you think about it, Evan, I mean, it's got to be the most complete rotation in, in the National League, perhaps American League, you know, thinking about the top of my head. It's sort of the most complete rotation the Dimex have had in franchise history. I mean, they had, you know, Schilling and, and Randy Johnson back in the day, who was a big, always a big drop-off. This is tough. I mean, you got Zach Gallon, who finished, what, second, third in the side young voting. Merrill Kelly what, is a stud. Now you got Rodriguez as the number three guy. Brian Fott, the young kid, was Ricky last year. He pitched well down the stretch. And he got a, you know, a few guys like Tommy Henry for the fifth spot. So they're sitting pretty. I'm not going to say they're going to, you know, knock off the Dodgers. I'm going to pick the Dodgers to win that division. You know, every time they can lift up, you know, lift up a, uh, a pencil and right, put their name in there. But uh, I think with him there, they got a better team than a year ago that, you know, that came within three games of winning it all. And Corbin Carroll, Ketel Marte, Emmanuel Suarez, Christian Walker, Gabriel Moreno. It's a pretty good lineup, too. Pretty good lineup and a lot of young players. Yeah, Suarez is going to help them a lot. And with the power, obviously, strikes out a lot. Moreno, she just get better. You know, Carroll knows the lead now, so he should be fine. Alec Thomas was sent down to Myers in center field, so he should be fine. I don't know what they're going to do with, with Gurriel. I don't, I don't, I'd be surprised if he's back. I think he'll be too expensive for them. But yeah, I mean, it should be a uh, good team. And like I said, I'm not going to pick him to win the uh, division. And they still only won 84 games last year and were outscored. But with that pitching, it'll give him a, a heads up over everybody. The only fear about the pitching you have is that those guys played so deep last year. And they're not used to it. Uh, Zach Gallon pitched 60 more innings than his career high. So I got to think they got to baby him for a while next year. Definitely keeping the fingers crossed for no injuries there with those guys, like you said, extending out and now trying to come back and replicate it. Another move that was made, Jamer Candelario, another former Tiger, signed a three-year, $45 million contract with the Cincinnati Reds. Three years, $45 million base with a club option for $15 million in 2027. So it could be four years, $60 million. It's a pretty big deal for Jamer Candelario. It was a guy who was non-tendered about 13 months ago by the Tigers. Signed a one-year, $5 million deal with the Washington Nationals. Played very well. Increased his stock to the point where the Nationals were able to trade him to the Cubs. He finished the season with the Cubs last year. And now he signs a big contract. Um, What does this move mean for the Cincinnati Reds? I'm very fascinated because they have a lot of infielders. And they just added a guy who can play you know, third base primarily. Also can play first base. And then obviously can slot in that designated hitter whenever you need him to. But do you foresee them trading a player like a Noel Di Marte or a Christian Encarnacion Strand or even shortstop prospect Edwin Arroyo to acquire pitching? Because that was one thing that I looked at when I was, you know, piecing together, hey, what could the Tigers maybe do is, you know, they're going to go get another starting pitcher. They probably could part ways with one. Maybe an Edwin Arroyo for a Matt Manning would make sense for the Tigers just to get some shortstop insurance if they need to eat the Javier Baez contract at some point in the future. I don't know if that's a fair deal or if those two teams will line up, but I do look at the Reds as a team that maybe has a surplus of infielders to trade from. What do you think? No, it was interesting. They made that move, and I think you're right. It would almost be like TLM Mariners signing uh, Blake Snell then you know, just give him so many pitchers so he can you know trade some of the young guys. But yeah, something's up with that because they need some pitching. All those young guys, you don't know what you're going to get from Hunter Graham, Ashcroft, you know, Lodello. We'll see what happens there. That's why they wanted Sunday Gray so bad. I think they got to trade for someone. I think a Dylan Cease would be perfect for them. But someone like that, they got to, that team's too young and talented to just let it slip away. And you know, like AL Central, NL Central is that 
you know, mediocre in the National League. So take take advantage of that. That's what I was going to ask is like, what players have they been in on and, and what players could they be in on from a pitching standpoint? Because when you do look up and down the lineup with the Reds, it's really good. And now they've added, you know, more of a veteran guy in, in Jamer Candelario, very well known for, you know, being a great guy in the clubhouse and behind the scenes, all about the team. We got to experience that a ton in Detroit. I think the world of Jamer Candelario, you know, from a human standpoint, and then obviously he had the really great bounce back year that he needed to get this contract. But other than that, like there's so many young guys on this roster. It just seems like, sure, you've added now a, a veteran switch hitting bat, which is very valuable. But where do you go for the pitching? Like who have they been in on that they missed on, but then, you know, who else is out there that they could go after? Yeah, that's right. They thought they had Sonny Gray. They really did. And I, you know, I'm not sure exactly, you know, who's out there. You know, I don't think, you know, so many people have said, oh, Corbin Burns is definitely going to be traded. I'm on the other way. I don't think they're going to trade him. I think they're so incensed that Craig Council left them to go to the Cubs that they're not about to wave the white flag and allow the Cubs to finish ahead of them. It's like they'll do everything possible to make sure that's a competitive team. But, you know, if not him, I mean, do they go after Tyler Glass now? I, you know, I don't think I would, but they could be desperate enough to say, you know what, he's got such a great arm, we'll, we'll, we'll pay the money, the $25 million, and hopefully it won't cost us too many prospects to get something like that done. But they got to get some, you know, veteran frontline pitching, you know, just like Baltimore, and you can't let this opportunity go by. And it sure sounds like for the Reds, at least, I mean, when they spent, the money that they've spent to go out and get a Candelario, maybe the trade market, like we've talked about, is a better avenue for them to go trading from their surplus of infielders to maybe go out and get Dylan Cease or Tyler Glasnow, two potential options for them. For those trades to happen, does the Otani thing have to go down? Like, like does Otani have to sign to open up the trade market for pitching, you think? No, I, you know, I really don't think he has anything to do with it, except for, you know, the, the big spenders. I mean, I think it only affects, like, you know, a few teams. Now, Yamamoto could, particularly, you know, for the Yankees, Dodgers, and Mets. He's going to go one of those three places. He wants he wants a spotlight. Yankees think they have him. Mets will probably, you know, spend more on everybody. And Dodgers will try to sell him on the whole Hollywood Beverly Hills thing. You know, I think, you know, going back a little bit, Evan, I, I think Jordan Montgomery would be a perfect fit, too, in Cincinnati. Just that veteran experience. He pitched in the AL East. So, you know, you know, he's a tough guy and thrived. But I think someone like that, you know, would be perfect too for a Cincinnati or a Baltimore Orioles. Okay, so we're going to talk about Shohei Otani, the greatest baseball player in the world, and where he might sign. But first, let's take a quick break. All right, we're back. So... Winter meetings were crazy with Shohei Otani because Toronto Blue Jays general manager Ross Atkins had the Zoom call with the white wall behind him, and it sounds like maybe he was with Otani in Florida. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts had some things to say. Dodgers general manager Brandon Gomes didn't have as much to say as as his uh, field manager there. In the three days of the winter meetings, Bob, you were all over it. What happened regarding Shohei Otani? Yeah, I mean, he just met. He met with the Dodgers on Friday. I think he met with the uh, Giants on Saturday. And then he flew to Dundee in Florida so he could see their new uh, spring training complex for the Toronto Blue Jays. But it was amazing how nobody wanted to acknowledge anything. You know, I know they expressed that they want everything to be private, but still. So it took Dave Roberts to finally uh, open the door and say, you know what, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, we met with him. Yeah, I, I like him. Conversation went well. 
So it was not against any type of rules. Dodgers went ballistic. You know, I was there at the, you know, the press briefing. And when he was done, he was studying his phone. And, you know, you could tell the look on his face. I walked over just to say hello. And he goes, hey, I'll be back in a minute, Bob. And rushed over with four Dodger PR guys and said, oh, this isn't good. And they didn't want him to say anything. You know, nothing to be, you know, ashamed of. Like, he didn't open any kind of strategy or anything like that. And then say, okay, hey, we're offering 10 years at 550, try to beat it. But anyways, they were upset that even... <laughs> He acknowledged that they uh, had him over at Dodger Stam. The funny thing is that when they have a Dodger Stam on Friday, usually they have tours and the, the gift shop's open. Gift shop is closed, no tours. Cancel, propose, postpone. They didn't want anybody to have it to see that uh, Otani was in town. That's so funny. What do you think about this whole secrecy of the Otani market? You know, I, I kind of like it. I know people are going crazy and they don't like it. I, I like the fact that you don't have some of these agents just leak everything out. In the sense, oh, we've got 10 teams after them. You know, then when it comes down to two or three, hey, we got some mystery teams too. So just, you know, bluffing and stuff like that, trying to drum up interest. This guy doesn't have to drum up interest. Everybody in the world wants them. So I think it's kind of refreshing in, in, in a way that, you know, you don't know much. It's not down to these four teams, these three teams, two teams. It's just, boom, here it is. I'm, I'm signing the contract. For sure. Obviously, a lot of it is pretty secretive pretty behind closed doors. Teams are keeping everything you know, close to the vest. But if you had to speculate based on your reporting so far, who are the favorites for Shohei Otani? And who do you think signs him? I think it's a two-team race. I think it's between the Dodgers and Blue Jays. You know, I've, I've been saying the Dodgers for a year. I still stick with them. But the Blue Jays, you keep hearing how much he likes it. You know, being an international star in a third country, what it would mean to them. They got to $300 million in renovation in the stadium. They need to sell those tickets. I don't think, I think money's no object there. You know, I won't completely rule out San Francisco, but he likes records. He, he would love to hit 60 home runs. You know, if you do it in San Francisco, he's not Barry Bonds. So I just think he doesn't want to do it there. Could he come back to Anaheim because he's comfortable? That's possible. But, you know, I, thought, I did find it intriguing there, Dan. I was talking to a couple of general managers about that. So the Dodgers called Joe Kelly, who's in Hawaii on vacation, and saying, Joe, we need to talk to you for a minute. You know, what's up? Are you willing to give up your number for Otani? Strange that they would ask him that without him being signed yet or anything like that. So it must be a confidence building and momentum for them to think that, yeah, okay, let's let's get this out of the way. Right. Let's check this box and just make sure that it that it's gonna go through. That's super fascinating. With the Blue Jays, I'm curious what you think about this as well. The Yankees obviously go out there and, and get Juan Soto. We saw that happen. The AL East, we know how tough of a division that is to win. The Blue Jays are really trying to push through and be a part of that. They have a good young core, as we've seen on display for, for the past few years. Otani would obviously take them to a completely different level. And they were in on Otani before the Juan Soto you know, trade got done. But do you think the Juan Soto trade with Soto going to the Yankees with the Orioles having the record that they had last year and, and showing so much potential and what they could be from a dynasty standpoint, does it almost put pressure on the Blue Jays to get this done with Otani and make it happen? You know, I mean, I, I think the pressure has been on even before that. I say Otani returned, you know, no, I say he went back to the Angels. I say Soto never got traded. I think they're kind of embarrassed. I mean, they only got a two-year window left now with a Vlad Guerrero and a Bo Bichette being eligible for free agency. They had the mo most talent in the division. 
and kind of squandered it the last couple of years. I know there's a ton of pressure in that front office. Just I think just like there was a lot of pressure on the Yankee front office with Brian Gatchman. I think they had to make big moves because they've had no season like they did this year. I think there'd be uh, guys fired. I think the same thing in Toronto. If for some reason, if they don't get the Yatani, they'll probably be all over Bellinger. I mean, the best thing for Bellinger that that opens up and they give him whatever he wants. But I, there's a lot of pressure up there to to make a big move. For sure. With the Yankees, though, it, it does really make a point and it sticks out when you think about Yoshinobu Yamamoto, one of the best pitchers that we've ever seen come from Japan to the United States. You got to like what the Yankees have with their lineup right now with LeMahieu. Yeah, DJ LeMahieu, Aaron Judge, Juan Soto, Anthony Rizzo, Glaber Torres, Giancarlo Stanton, Anthony Volpe. Like there, there are guys in this offense that can get the job done. There's also some young players as well that they have that they can you know lean on coming off the bench. But my question to you is like, what do they do about the rotation? You have Garrett Cole, Carlos Rodon. Where do you really feel confident in them moving forward when it comes to a rotation standpoint? Like it just seems like that might be their weakness, but also a Yamamoto could completely change everything for them and, and really reshape how we view their rotation. What do you think? No, they're desperate for pitching. You're absolutely right. I mean, you think about it, you know, they trade four or five pitchers in the San Diego trade, I think three pitchers in the Boston trade for Verdugo, lost three, I want to say pitchers also, lost three pitchers in the Rule 5 draft. That's a lot of pitching depth gone. They need a stud pitcher. You know, if they can't, you know, if they can't, you know, get Yamamoto, then they got to go somewhere else. You know, maybe do, do they Blake, get Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery? I think it's got to be one of those guys for sure. Because I don't think you can do all that stuff with the offense and all of a sudden be that thin the starting rotation. Because they lost an awful lot of depth. You mentioned some, you know, three names, obviously, with Yamamoto, with Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery. Montgomery may be going back to the Texas Rangers. I don't know what you think about that. Blake Snell, we'll see what happens there. But for me, when I look at it from the outside looking in, I say, man, if, I, if I'm the Yankees and I just went out and got Juan Soto, I'll pay Yamamoto whatever it takes to get him to come to New York. Is that how they have to operate at this point? Yeah, and I don't think they have to outbid the Mets. I don't think it's about that. I think it'll be close enough. If you're a Yamamoto, it's almost like, you know, if you want the spotlight and everything else, you play for the New York Yankees, you know, biggest biggest team in baseball, you know, most marquee team and you know, maybe all the sports for that matter. There's a big difference between the Yankees and Mets. Just like, you know, big difference, Dodgers, Angels, you know, Cubs, White Sox, that sort of thing. But they're confident they'll get him. If they don't get him, yeah, they gotta you know, spend that money somewhere else. But yeah, I'm with you. I don't think money's gonna be any object if you've gotten this far. If you're going to go to 300, 310, why not go to 320, For sure. A couple other names that jump out to me. You had mentioned Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Cody Bellinger, Josh Hader. I guess just to start with the two starting pitchers of that group, Snell and Montgomery, who could be in play there? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Montgomery stays in uh, Texas. I think he had a great time there. Yeah, but if not, he could go, you know, New York or something like that, you know. He would have been Philadelphia's next choice if he had not signed Aaron Nola, just because he knows he's you know, a big, tough guy. But he's going to get a lot of offers. He, you know, he may be a guy that waits until Yamamoto, because all the teams are Yamamoto that don't get him. They say, hey, how about me? I'll, I'll go there. Snell would be interested to see where he goes. You know, I thought Atlanta still could be a, a possibility. He's only played in a small market. I don't think he can do well in uh, you know, New York, Philly, Boston. Those are tough places. 
But somebody may say, you know what, we'll give it a try. Otherwise, I can certainly see him in San Francisco. So if I had a guess right, right now, I bet Montgomery stays in Texas. I'll have Snell going to San Francisco. Yeah, well, with Bellinger, my question with you on that is like, it sounds like Scott Boris is going to shoot to get him as much as he can possibly get him. And maybe that could lead to some disappointment. I don't know if you feel the same way or not, but where does he end up and how much do you think he actually gets considering the track record of inconsistency? Well, he's looking for 10 years at 250. That tells you what, you know, what he's thinking right now. So when I talk to, you know, different executives and GMs, I say, who could be the guy last standing? Who's the guy that's still, we're starting spring training, he's not signed. And it was almost a toss-up between Cody Bellinger and Josh Hader. Not a lot of spots for Josh Hader either. He wants to break the record of, what, $100 million, turn $2 million, and then when Diaz has with the Mets for reliever, he certainly, you know, he's got the numbers. But, you know, you've got the Texas Rangers after you. I'm not sure who else. Philadelphia Phillies are not in on him. So I think they're having trouble drumming up some interest. So it'll be interesting on, on both those guys. I think Bellinger could easily end up in San Francisco too. You know, that they need to make a splash. They can say, hey, we got to dodge your former star, that sort of thing. I know the Cubs still like him. He had a great year for the Cubs. But it doesn't seem like they're as aggressive as, as I thought they'd be. Which, you know, they may be a little reluctant saying, okay, he did that for one year with us. What will he do for a long-term contract? One more name I need to ask you about is Matt Chapman, a guy that, you know, a lot of Tigers fans thought maybe the Tigers could be interested in just considering the fact that they have the opening at third base where there isn't like a clear starter there right now. The Miguel Cabrera money is off the books. Would a Matt Chapman not make sense for the Tigers? The Tigers aren't going to go for Matt Chapman because they think that they have Jace Young, the brother of Josh Young in the waiting. And they think that he could be an everyday third baseman by the time we get to the second half of the 2024 season, if all goes well, and if the Tigers are making a push for the playoffs. So they don't want to make that long-term investment in the third baseman. But for Chapman, where could he end up? We just saw what Jamer Candelario got. Matt Chapman, better than Jamer Candelario. Where does he end up? Where are potential fits for him? And what's it going to take to get him to sign? Do we have to have some dominoes fall for him first? I don't think we need dominoes for him. You would think, okay, if it doesn't go back to Toronto, San Francisco is a natural fit. He used to play for the A's and everything else. So that's natural. You know, Seattle's got an opening. They traded away Suarez to Arizona. So they set themselves a lot of money. And the fans are very upset. So I can easily see him there too. So I'll go either you know, Toronto, San Francisco, or uh, Seattle. I'll probably go to San Francisco. I just think that they really need to uh, spend some of that money to get people excited, get people to come back to the ballpark. They're only 17th in attendance this year. No doubt, yeah. So for anybody out there, though, that thinks that Matt Chapman might be a Tiger, PSA to all of you, that's not happening. But that's really good info and really good intel on a bunch of these you know, free agents. And we also talked about you know, the trade market and potential trade candidates. Anything else that stood out to you at the winter meetings? Anything that you picked up on along the way that piqued your interest, or did we cover most of it? Yeah, you know, I think the most entertaining thing was the former Tiger great, you know, Jim Leland. You know, when he got inducted to the Hall of Fame, having his press conference, you know, the next day. You know, as we all know, you know, Jim's a chain smoker, always, you know, had the cigarettes on the on the bench. So, you know, he does his spiel in front of all the reporters, comes off the side, you know, talks to reporters again. And he asked John Chesikoski, the vice president of the Hall of Fame, he has a room here I can smoke a cigarette. And, uh, and John says, Jim, you're a Hall of Famer now. You can smoke anywhere you want in this building. 
<laughs> Jim left. And he said, okay, I'm going to take you up on it. We thought it was hilarious on Jim's plaque in uh, Cooperstown. Uh, you'll have he has a smoking cigarette on it. So I don't think he'll, uh, you know, I knew that. Well, it's not a controversy, but the big question of what cap will he wear? I'd be stunned if he has any insignia at all. He doesn't want to invent, you know, the Tigers or, or the Pirates or even for the Marlins, for that matter, for you know, winning a World Series there. So I don't think he'll have insignia. Yeah, it sure sounds that way, by the way. He's uh, talking about it. And great Jim Leland story, by the way. I'm going to tell you, you just made a ton of friends with the Detroit Tigers because they all love their Jim Leland stories. You just told a great one. And that's going to go a long way with them. So you just made some <laughs> some good friends in Detroit. <laughs> Love Detroit. You know, when the Tigers were going great guns, I was there all the time. You know, when they were in the playoffs year after year. But one thing, too, I, uh, when someone's asking Jim Leland about games, he brings up game two of the 2013 ALC, just like Dave Dombrowski does. We're talking about it's 10 years ago. It still haunts those guys to this day, knowing they were the best team in baseball, knowing they were cruising right there. That David Ortiz Grand Slam, you know, changed everything. And you'll still have players from that team, coaches from that team, saying we discussed even walking Ortiz with the bases loaded, you know, but Barry Bonds treatment and you know, not letting us beat him. They did and but yeah, I mean it's amazing. Here's Jim just getting to a Hall of Fame. He's still talking about that loss. It's funny because you get around the Thanksgiving table in my house. I'm from Detroit, grew up here. I watch those games and that still is a Thanksgiving you know, type of conversation with the family is, is those kind of moments and those kind of games. And so it was great to hear Jim's perspective on it. I'm super happy for him as well. He's been so helpful to me in my young career, just as you have been, Bob, with helping me figure out how to do this job and what this looks like. And you know, Jim's been a great friend to me and somebody that you know, when I was able to see him at the winter meetings and shake his hand. You know, he looked me in the eye and said, you know, thank you. And I, I could tell it meant a lot when I said thanks to him. And, you know, he has no idea how much he's meant to me. But, Bob, hopefully we can have you back in Detroit if the Tigers finally make the playoffs. And if that never happens, hopefully we can get you back on the podcast at some point in the future, maybe at the trade deadline. You brought a ton of great information on all the big name free agents and trade candidates. Thanks for joining me on this special episode. Let's do it again soon. All right. Look forward to it, Evan. Thank you. Again, that was Bob Nightingale, USA Today Sports MLB columnist and insider. Find his work at usatoday.com slash sports slash MLB and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at B Nightingale. Stay tuned for our regular episode of Days of Roar that comes out Monday afternoon. Mark and I will unpack more about the Tigers from the winter meetings and probably debate about Matt Vierling at third base. Until then, go in peace. Peace.